0: Welcome to the Security Analysis Podcast. This podcast explores investment strategies, economics, personal finance, and stock analysis. It features real conversations and analysis to inform, educate, and entertain. Note that nothing in this podcast is investment advice, and it is for entertainment and discussion purposes only. Do your own due diligence before making any investment. Now, on to the show.
1: Today, I'm speaking with Ian Biesek. Ian earned an economics degree from Colorado State in 2010, and he moved to a role as a hedge fund analyst at Carisdale Capital from 2011 to 2013. Since 2013, he has been an independent investor, a prolific writer, and he looks for strong investment opportunities, mainly outside of the United States. He's lived in Mexico, Argentina, and he currently lives in Colombia. So welcome to the podcast, Ian.
0: Thank you. It's great to be here. Awesome. So
1: how'd you first catch the bug? How'd you first get interested in investing?
0: Oh yeah, yeah. So in fifth grade my my school was a part of a statewide in Indiana at this time, statewide stock picking competition and this was nineteen ninety nine. And so I told my team we should buy like Yahoo and all these tech companies and we doubled our money in like ten weeks. won we a cash prize from the state. And I was like, Oh, this investing is super easy and then like over the next couple of years I watched and all the stocks that I'd picked like lost almost all their value, and I'm like, hmm this isn't so interesting, but I want to learn more about it, and so I kind of set off the lifelong
1: passion for investing. Cool. Yeah, I, I had similar experiences. I, I first got interested in it during the internet bubble. It was a wild time. So how would you describe your overall investing philosophy? Do you lean more towards value, growth? Are you more aggressive or defensive? How would you describe your overall approach?
0: Yeah, I... Don't really love the value growth binary because I think a lot of the stuff that's pitched is just straight value tends to become value traps. But I definitely say I focus more on paying a reasonable price for, for good companies than chasing whatever the latest fad or hyper growth story is. My ideal company is something where I can buy at a reasonable multiple and then it can grow at 8 or 10% a year for a long time. Particularly love tax efficiency, so if I can buy something where there's a strong moat, and it's going to keep growing for many years as a highly predictable cash flow. That's kind of my favorite place to be.
1: Yeah, we're pretty much aligned there. I used to be more pure, puristic value, and I bought a lot of value traps, and I've I've leaned more towards quality and moats over time. So we're we're aligned there, that's for sure. So do you do shorting? Are you long-short, or do you exclusively look for long?
0: Yeah, so at Kirstel we came fame, I guess, from being an activist short seller. We kind of exposed a lot of Chinese companies that were engaged in financial shenanigans. And so that kind of was very interesting to me to to kind of be on the ground working on all these short ideas. And obviously it was profitable. But even with a great team, they're wonderful people. It's so stressful, and it's like trying to do that as a one-person shop without all of the support from the research team and. Being able to hire analysts and expert calls and everything—it's it's very difficult to do that sort of forensic work by myself. And just shorting—I don't know—just shorting stuff because it looks overvalued has not worked at least in the U.S. market for many years. And so, I can't really add any value there. So sometimes I short, but it's usually just kind of funding shorts, like companies that are low quality. That I would rather short an AT and T than an Nvidia, if you get my drift. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Or I'll just short indexes against my exposure, like I'll short Brazil, just the ETF, because I think my picks in Latin America will outperform the index, but I don't want to get killed if there's another like COVID where everything goes down 25% overnight.
1: Super interesting. Yeah, and that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I agree that shorts have been a graveyard in the United States for trying to short overvalued momentum stocks. It's definitely trampled a lot of investors. So... In terms of your these longs that you hold, how many stocks do you typically hold? How do you think about portfolio construction, that kind of thing?
0: Yeah, so I own I a large portfolio. I have a buy and hold portfolio that I share with my readers, and that has about 150 names in it. But obviously, I don't actively manage that. Like I said, it's buy and hold. I'd say my top 25 holdings make up about 60% of my money. That's kind of what I follow the most closely.
1: Cool. and. I know that you've developed this focus on Central and South America. So, where did where did that decision come from to focus on that part of the world? You know how how did you come how did you come across that as as the ideal kind of hunting ground?
0: Yeah, so I saved up some money working at Gearsdale and kind of after three years, I decided I wanted to take some time off and go traveling. So that was something I'd never really done as a kid. My family wasn't really all that wealthy, and so just went traveling, learned Spanish in Guatemala, then went to Colombia next, and met my wife in Colombia, and then we decided to just keep traveling. Lived in Argentina for a while, lived in Mexico, and then came back to Colombia, and just, she doesn't want to go to the U.S., I'm happy down here. When I saw there was a real underserved opportunity, there's very little, in my opinion, there's very little coverage of these Latin American companies, either in New York or in London, I think there's an opportunity for people that speak Spanish and kind of live day to day. See how these companies are operating their businesses.
1: Do you think you can find a lot of more attractive value down there? Like, are the company? Do you find like high quality companies that are selling at cheap prices? Is that kind of the key appeal of it?
0: Yeah, I think the problem now is that they've been cheap for seven, eight, ten years. The question is when will they re-rate? It's no, the difficulty isn't finding cheap companies. That difficulties finding catalysts that will make them achieve a market multiple. This year was progress. Argentina was the number one stock market in the world this year. Mexico was number four. Brazil was in the top ten. So finally some progress.
1: Yeah, that's that's great. And what do you think's driven that kind of valuation divergence between Central and South America and the United States, or really it's the United States versus the world at this point. The US is, is very overvalued, and then most international markets are very cheap. What do you think driving that? that uh, yeah, the, I mean, f-
0: the quickest answer would just be there's not enough tech companies in the indexes in South America. Brazil is a few, but aside from that, very little. More broadly, I think people think of our countries as primarily being commodity exporters, just being places you go to mine gold, get oil, whatever obviously those businesses get very low multiples in the u.s as well with good reason cyclical hard to forecast future cash flows very tied to the global economy so i think people write off our our economies as just being kind of natural resource hubs but they've really evolved mexico's now manufacturing is by far the biggest piece of their economic importance brazil is a diversified economy yeah things Things have really evolved, but I think people still have this like 1980s, 1990s conception of what the local countries do
1: here. Yeah, I read some of the things that you wrote about Mexico, and I thought it was interesting. So what I was reading from from what you were saying was that Mexico has a growing global middle class. It seems like the trade dynamics are shifting from China to Mexico. Do you think that those themes make Mexico one of the more attractive countries to invest in?
0: Yeah, I'd say that's one of my top themes for throughout the 2020s is to be long Mexico because I think it continues to integrate into the U.S. economy. It's probably wealthier than people give it credit for. On a purchasing power parity adjusted basis, Mexico is the same per capita income as China for no end to the Chinese consumer story. But where's the Mexican consumer story? They're right next door. Like 25, sorry, 20% of Mexicans speak English already. Like the NFL is growing tremendously in popularity. There's huge cultural ties already and now with discount airlines it's a hundred dollars to get from mexico to texas so everyone can go visit their friends and family yeah i think people are really sleeping on what was it yeah i think latinos just overtook caucasians for the top population group in texas this year as well it's real regional integration with texas which is arguably one of the biggest most promising economic hubs in the u.s
1: gotcha yeah that's a super interesting theme now Looking at you know Central and South America as a whole, is Mexico the most attractive place, or do you think other countries are equally attractive or more attractive?
0: I think that depends on what kind of what factor or theme is most interesting or where capital is coming from. Mexico is by far the most tied to the U.S. because of the strong highway and rail integration to the U.S. So it's really kind of the best alternative. Like if you're thinking, where do I want to move my factory now that I don't want it in China? Mexico is miles ahead of uh, Brazil or Peru or whatever just because of the logistics. If it's commodities that work, like if we're in a new era of inflation and persistently higher prices for stuff, then countries like Chile or Argentina would be better off since they're still large commodity exporters. Yeah, it really depends on what theme outperforms. performs. I think from a governance, from an institution basis, Chile is the most reliable market. It often scores ahead of even the U.S. and the Heritage Freedom Index, like in terms of how, how well your rights are protected as investors, how much how easy it is to form a business, tax rates, that sort of stuff. So Chile is a very good market. It's just kind of isolated from the world. And so they've been trying to play their cards with green energy, with lithium, with copper. But I kind of fizzled out this year. So I'll be curious to see what their next act is. I like Chile from an institutional basis.
1: Gotcha. Yeah, I've noticed that Heritage Foundation Index for Economic Freedom. I, th- I think it's pretty useful when you're looking at international, comparing different countries and you know they're, they're, whether it's an attractive place to invest. I, I agree with you there. I think that's a that's a good metric to look at. So, what are some of the major kind of secular themes that you're thinking about? So it seems like a big one that you've talked about is the growing global middle class. Do, do I have that right? Are there other themes that you're uh, tapping into
0: yeah, I think that's a key one. just when you look at the demographics of developed markets, I don't know where we get growth over the next twenty years, like Japan's already in population decline, Europe is in population decline, excluding some migrants who don't have much disposable income the u s is primarily relying on Latino immigrants to keep its population growing. So I like give you just a consumer staple or consumer discretionary company or whatever. I think you have to go to emerging markets and kind of what's left. And I think people are tapped out. I just don't how much more money can sp- people spend. From my perspective, it looks like 2021 was kind of the peak of, <laughs> of how much like credit and stimulus-driven spending we could reasonably hope to pull off anytime soon. So, yeah, I think I think emerging markets are, are a huge growth opportunity. Class. Yeah, and I think the, another theme I like is kind of deglobalization or at least kind of localizing of supply chains. I think we kind of hit peak peak globalization, maybe in 2019, I think people are going to be much more skeptical of putting supply chains that rely on India and China and far-flung countries. If you're an end supplier in North America, not only the pandemic, obviously the pandemic and worries around China, but now you look at like the, the unease in the Middle East where you have shipping lanes getting blocked, like the US seems to be retreating from the world's policeman role to some degree. And so I think if you're a multinational company and your headquarters is in Chicago, you would much rather have your factories be in Mexico rather than in Vietnam, with the geopolitical situation being so unsettled. So
1: it sounds like you agree with that Peter Zehan thesis that you know that the U.S. is going to retreat from the world, that we're going to deglobalize, that we're going to move factories away from China and India, that our role of kind of supporting the. Uh, world's oceans is going to start to disappear and you'll see more piracy and things like that.
0: Do, do I have that right? Yeah, I certainly found this book interesting. Whether that will happen or not, I mean, it depends a lot on elections. The U.S. can change policy direction so greatly every four years. So it's hard to, hard to make any long-term forecasts. That said, I don't think people were factoring in deglobalization really as a risk at all until the pandemic. I think it's something that now executives are having to think about. And I think we'll continue seeing changes in capital allocation kind of over the next five years as companies start to prioritize other things rather than just cheapest labor.
1: Yeah, I think in the U.S. you started to have a political move away from it like 10 years ago. Like I think right-wingers used to be very focused on like really kind of being the world's policeman and that kind of thing and being very engaged. They've completely shifted on that i think the left has been pretty anti-globalization anti-trade for like 20 years now so and now that you have the real world incentive where it's like this may not make sense anymore i kind of i agree with it i think that's probably the direction we're headed in currently
0: yeah, so i think just as investors we have to think about kind of what would hurt our portfolio the most i think the world is not really positioned for deglobalization and like in the case of mexico in 2021, the stocks were 60% off their all time highs in dollar terms, even after you had China with the problems it was having. And now, like, Mexico's doubled off the lows, but it's still down in dollar terms from 2013. And you look, they've already overtaken China as the top trade partner of the US. You have, like, the northern part of Mexico picking up 150,000 immigrants from other parts of Mexico and Central America every year. You have these huge factories going in every week. It's a new billion-dollar, two-billion-dollar plant getting announced, and the stocks are still below 2013 peak. It's like this, this is a thesis that if it plays out, it's going to really screw up people's portfolios, and you can get like the insurance for it at a very reasonable price.
1: Gotcha. And with that thesis, you seem very bearish on China. So is that a theme that you act on at all, or is it simply you avoid China and don't go along it?
0: Yeah, it's, it's more a... Avoid it due to the political intricacies there. I'd be very scared to be short China at these prices because it's already down so dramatically. You look at a company like JD, that if you trust their numbers is at nine times forward earnings and growing earnings at 15% a year. So, if anything good happens in China, you would get run over if you're trying to short that. It's tempting to go along a little bit, even though I hate the political system. I don't know. It's outside, I don't speak Chinese. I never traveled there. I feel more comfortable <laughs> in my home terrain.
1: Gotcha. Okay. Now I know that you manage, you've talked about it, where you manage a aggressive money portfolio and a defensive portfolio. So do you want to talk a little bit about the differences between those two?
0: Yeah, I'd say the defensive one is kind of a we we're talking about in terms of just these high businesses that I think have long-term that are very hard to disrupt long-term kind of the slower compounders where I'm just going to make eight to 10% earnings growth. And if I buy at a reasonable price, maybe a little bit of multiple expansion. Yeah. And then the aggressive portfolio, because a lot of people, a lot of subscribers wanted something more active. And so I was just like, all right, so this is, this is not how I manage most of my money, but you want an aggressive portfolio. So I'll make more active trades. Launched that in 2020 and we've been up every year. Last year, which I was most proud of being up last year, and so that that's just kind of where it's more tactical and more active.
1: Wow! So even in the aggressive portfolio, you were up in 2022 when most markets were down. That's great, yep. awesome. So I also saw you wrote a little bit about regional U.S. banks. So do you do some investing in the United States, or you know, are you strictly more more international focused?
0: No, Yeah, the U.S. is still my largest portfolio allocation. It's about half of my money total.
1: And is Um, the focus on those regional banks?
0: I would say the focus is just kind of, I mean, the U.S. has more good companies than any other country in the world. So I own a lot of the industrials and staples and healthcare. But yes, I do own the regional banks. I think they went to a ridiculous price in March of this year. I think everyone was playing for a repeat of two thousand eight, whereas the underlying underlying problem in two thousand eight was a credit quality problem. The banks had made just awful loans. And this time around it was an interest rate, like mark to market assets problem, which was totally different different problem and different solution than two thousand eight. And yet people seem to be just imagining themselves as heroes of the big short that we're going to make a killing by shorting all these banks that were already down. Tremendously, and I took the other side of that trade.
1: Well done, yeah. Definitely wasn't a repeat of that situation. Um. All right, so I thought now we could shift into some of your more specific picks. We could start to talk about some of those. So you've talked, you've written a little bit about like kind of Modi blue chips in the United States, so and like big companies internationally. So one of them I thought was kind of interesting was Nestle. So. You talked about a lot of the great brands that they have. What, what do you think is the investment case for Nestle?
0: Yeah, so that's interesting. It's not one of my larger holdings within foods, but I just really respect the the management, their long-term track record they've put up. But yeah, that said, I'd, I own a lot more of Hershey or McCormick or several of the other food companies. So I wouldn't stick my neck out there too greatly for Nestle, but their track record speaks for themselves.
1: Gotcha, yeah. Hershey's an interesting one. So Hershey's kind of it's not super cheap right now, but it's down significantly. It's at some attractive multiples, and now they seem to be under pressure because of the GLP ones. Do you think that's all a bunch of hype, or do you think that the current drawdowns attractive for Hershey?
0: Yeah. So I got my position in 2017, 2018, kind of when they'd been stagnant for a few years. That's generally how I like to play these staples companies, where you have like a three to five year period where Profits are kind of flat. The stock price hasn't gone anywhere. People are calling for management to get changed. <laughs> and so, when you start seeing activists show up, that's often a good time to buy these companies because they're the proverbial companies that a ham sandwich could run, to use Buffett's term. So, yeah, I've owned Hershey for a while. I was very surprised and impressed how well they did during the pandemic. I think they have more pricing power than people expected, and they're able to manage their supply chains better than a lot of other people. Ironically, probably some of that was due to having most of their manufacturing in Mexico. I've checked to Hershey Mexico people, and and they were able to run a very tight ship at a time when a lot of other American companies were running out of packaging material, couldn't get shipping shipping spaces from Asia, and having that supply chain 200 miles from Texas worked out very well for them. Slightly off track, though. Yeah, so what do I think about the business now? Yeah, I think it got overvalued, kind of. 18 months ago, people are just kind of extrapolating not only the profit growth, but the profit margin growth. But as we've seen this year, retailers push back, consumers push back. You can't raise prices forever. Yeah, so I think the market's kind of sobered up a little bit on Hershey. Valuation's reasonable, sub 20 times earnings. Chocolate's still a oligopoly market globally. They've done better than I expected with the snack foods as well. Like Historically, Hershey's been very bad at acquisitions and it's not added value through their M&A but they've, they've stepped it up over the past few years. Perhaps, perhaps management has learned from past mistakes, in which case you you meld the uh, global chocolate monopoly with improved capital allocation, and things get very interesting.
1: Cool, and do you worry at all the, about the GLP-1s, like in influencing the business, or do you think that's just kind of an outlandish thing that investors are worried
0: about? Yeah, I, th- I think it could hurt volumes mid to high single digits in the U.S., I don't think it takes much away from global markets. I think that's what a lot of American investors miss. They just view these companies as American companies, whereas in reality, most, at least half, and in quite a few cases, the majority of their sales are ex-US. Yeah, and like GLP use in in emerging markets is minimal. Yeah, so I think I think GLP ones are here to stay. They seem to be quite effective. And they do alter people's consumption habits. So it's, I'm, I'm quite convinced that the data behind them is pretty good, and they're something that's here to stay. But I don't think I don't think you change human nature. The drug we've had drugs for lots of other stuff, like nicotine cessation or ma- making people not want to drink alcohol. And yet, those industries have done all right.
1: Okay, and another kind of Modi large cap you've talked about was Estee Lauder. So. They're in a bit of a drawdown right now. What's your take on that? (laughs) 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 Understatement, yeah. (laughs) What do you think about what do you think about the prospects for them?
0: Yeah, so I think that one's been kind of a perfect storm in terms of their large exposure to the Chinese market, which it seems like the Chinese consumer is really struggling lately. And then travel retail, which had kind of a like a lot of cosmetics products are sold at airports. People buy gifts for people as they're going somewhere else. And that kind of rebounded in 2022, but it's rolled back over this year. You see that with like the alcohol companies. Quite a few other places that rely on airport retail have really taken it on the chin this year. But yeah, I think long term, obviously cosmetics demand grows, influencer culture, social media. Seems like spending there only goes up long term. It's a very small market. It's like L'Oreal and Shiseido, and not much else uh, <laughs> at a global scale. And so... I assume over time all those companies will grow and continue to trade market share around with each other. And I think you own a much bigger business 10 or 20 years out in the future than today. but you look at earnings so like prior to pandemic it was like three, three fifty, four, five. then during the pandemic, it was like eleven and now it's two. and so people are looking at the very low number now, just as they looked at the very high number and bid way too much for the stock. 18 months ago. Now they're looking at the very low number and saying this is a busted business. Management all needs to be fired and all. But hey, I mean, we've just had the biggest shock to the global economy in ages. So I'd say let things settle down for a year or two. I think you'll see the business is more resilient than people are giving it credit for. It.
1: Yeah, lots well, of constant in investing. People just extrapolate whatever happened last week and assume it'll go on forever. <laughs> it's always a good opportunity for longer term investors. So, Kinda in that same vein, you heard about Diageo. I just bought it. I think it's a good company. Yeah, it's how you join the family. <laughs> yeah, I'm uh, I'm in now. So why do you think it's a, a solid investment from here?
0: I mean, you've got brands going back to the 1700s. In the case of Guinness beer, people's alcohol consumption is exceptionally sticky. It takes apparently trying to set your brand on fire, like Bud Light did this year, to draw to change any consumer behavior at all brands like Johnny Walker will still be consumed by our grandchildren generations to come. I essentially view Diageo and Brown Foreman, which I also own a lot of, which is Jack Daniels. I view those as just like infinite duration bonds on human alcohol consumption and partying and having fun. I don't think anything changes that. And I think if you buy it a reasonable entry multiple, like with Diageo at 17 times earnings, that's the starting 6% earnings yield. So you're getting essentially a 6% perpetuity bond where I figure they grow earning 7% a year long term. And I've locked in a double digit total annualized return for decades in a tax efficient manner. Yeah. And so it's not the most exciting position. It's never going to be the stock that's up the most in my portfolio any given year, but I can feel comfortable slugging a lot of money in a stock like that. So it's, there's no wipeout risk. And at worst, it underperforms for a few years. But I don't mind if a stock goes sideways for five years before it goes up. That's much different than losing half my money or permanent capital impairment.
1: Yeah, I totally agree with all that. I think it's, they own a lot of very iconic brands that are going to last a long time. And I think if you're willing to look out for the long haul, it's the kind of thing that you can own and just buy and hold and put away in a coffee can. And it's probably going to work out fine over the long run. Yep. Another company I thought was interesting was you wrote a little bit about Verizon. So um you wrote that they're at kind of a good stage in their capital cycle. There's an attractive dividend yield, earnings seem to be improving. So what's the uh what's the case for Verizon?
0: Yeah, I think I think you summarized it well, just that they've been spending massive amounts on five G for the past three years and they're finally through the worst of that. So let's see you get much lower capital spending, I believe $10 billion lower sequentially this year versus last year. I think everyone in the industry has seen that they've competed fairly heavily and we will see more pricing discipline, always, fingers crossed, could be right there. Yeah, so 5G investments start to pay off, data keeps growing, it's one of those things that's going to keep growing long term. I think the price is so bombed out here, but 7, it's trading between 7 and 8 times earnings. That just Flat earnings, you do very well, starting double digit earnings yield, so I think it's priced for a terminal decline at this price, which i don't I don't see why this is a terminal decline business. Maybe you could argue that between the capital spending and higher interest rates with their debt load that they're in big trouble, but now that interest rates appear to be heading back down that that should free up the balance sheet So yeah that would be one of the one of the fairly rare things that I own where it's deep value, and there's not really. A girl story at all. It's just the price is so low that I don't see how you lose much money from here.
1: Yeah, it's on my list of companies that I wanna look into a little bit more. I, I guess on the surface people might say it's in terminal decline because of cord cutters, like because people will shift away from cable. What would you say to that you know, that line of reasoning?
0: I think that hurts more like Charter and Comcast okay. and some of the others more than Verizon.
1: Because at least Verizon has the cell phone business, and that's if fair. people do cut the cord, they'll probably move more towards, you know, 5G and that type of thing.
0: Yeah, I would just say more broadly, I have almost no media allocation. Like, I don't own Disney, I don't own Comcast, I, I don't own like, any of the streamers. I viewed that as just a capital destructive industry, and so I like to start Verizon, so I own at least one thing that's tendentially involved there, but but yeah, I'm still underweight that sector overall. And so yeah, sure. I would just offer that as context for like Verizon being the only stock I own there rather than being part of a broader sector. But Yeah, I agree with you. Streaming
1: sounds like it is just a terrible business, it seems like. Even like the leader the people who are succeeding at it at Netflix, it's still not a great business. It's grown a lot in the last 10 years, but I wouldn't say it's a good business. And then with Disney, it seems to me like they're replacing... A really good business, like they're with the linear networks that are in kind of that look like they're in secular decline anyway. And then they're replacing with streaming, which just seems like this capital intensive monstrosity. So I, I agree with you there. I think it's probably a bad industry. So, okay. So moving on to outside of the US. So I know a major theme for you has been Mexican airports. So that seems like to me like a very good Modi business. What, what is the case for Mexican airports?
0: Yep, these are my largest. There's three of them that are listed, and in an aggregate, they're my largest position. I've owned them since 2016. So, been long and mostly right, but occasionally painfully wrong <laughs> like during the pandemic. But yeah, the theme is it's kind of the perfect emerging middle class sort of story. Ten years ago, the vast majority of Mexicans traveled by bus, and now the majority of Mexicans travel by bus, but you're seeing increasing share for airlines. I think you've got another 20 years of transition until it's almost all airlines rather than bus, like the U.S. That's your domestic growth, your international growth, the U.S. and Canada. People people like cheap vacations. Mexico is increasingly viewed as safe and a nice place to be rather than cartels or whatnot. People, there's a huge cheap retirement or cheap uh, remote work community growing at the beaches and in a Mexico city. So I think you get a lot of wealthy Americans, Canadians heading to Mexico, save money. I think over the next 20 years, you'll have a huge medical tourism industry take off in Mexico as well because procedures cost one fifth to one tenth what they do in the US. And so, particularly if the US government tries to cut back medicare there's issues with the u.s healthcare system i think a lot of people say hey i can just pay for surgeries out of pocket and get a u.s trained doctor who will see me tomorrow rather than going through the monstrosity of this u.s system sorry yeah, i'm anyway, ending at the broader thesis yeah what's interesting about the airports particularly you've got 50-year contracts so you get to capitalize all the money you put into the airports for growth over a decades long span contracts give you guaranteed returns, including inflation bumps. And so you've had st- you've had steady 70% EBITDA margins since the companies went public in the 1990s. Sorry, they were formed in the 1990s, they went public in 2004. But anyway, yeah, so you've just had steady businesses with huge growth in general, four to five times growth for these airports since they were privatized, depends on the property, of course. But General, and then your EBITDA actually grows faster than that because you get to monetize through hotels, car rentals, concessions, advertising, whatnot. The non non aeronautical revenues, so like everything I just mentioned, has grown more than twice as quickly as aviation revenues. And so you've got the guaranteed revenue stream on the on the aviation revenues, which itself grows double digits, and then the non aeronautical grows even faster. So yeah, I think you've got tremendous growth machines that are usually selling at reasonable entry points. Call it. 10 to 12 times EBITDA. Historically, on average, call it 16 to 18 times earnings for mid to high teens growth. Yeah, uh, This year, they were hit with the government said that it wanted to renegotiate the contracts. And so the stocks went down 40% today. a day, which is uh, obviously unpleasant. But it turns out the government didn't have the authority to really do much. And so you yeah, had the president Like the Mexican president, who's kind of Trumpy and the way he tweets, he was out saying that it was time to make the airline industry more more affordable for consumers and whatnot. But then it actually went to the negotiators and regulators, and they negotiated a 1% reduction in concessions. Uh, That was the grand uh, bargain they made. As it turns out, the Mexican government had given them aid during the pandemic in return for the airports being closed. And our EBITDA margins had actually gone up from the usual 70% to 77%. And now it looks like we'll go back to the old 70%, which as a long-term investor. Right? Who cares? But obviously, it caused a lot of market indigestion this year. But that was a buying opportunity for people that are paying attention because we had these great businesses that temporarily went down to seven times EBITDA uh, due to some scary headlines.
1: Wow, yeah, that sounds like it's a good opportunity. And what kind of dividend yields do they pay out? Like, don't some of them have a situation where they pay out all the free cash flow and dividends? And what are the current yields like?
0: That's correct. Two of the three pay 100% of free cash flow as dividends, and then the other one retains some cash flow because it buys more airports, whereas the other two have largely just gone and given back all the cash. I talked to the CFO of Pacifico Airports, one of the airport groups, and I asked him kind of, their interviews in Spanish, but I asked him what message he would have for American listeners. And he said, my message is that I want to pay the largest dividend on the Mexican Stock Exchange and grow that dividend as quickly as possible. Pretty good in a market like Mexico, where you've got these family-run companies that are kind of looking out for the family's interest rather than outside shareholders. It's so refreshing to see a, a manager who says, my goal is just to increase our cash flow so that I can pay you guys more dividends.
1: That's awesome. Very interesting
0: to see that sort of thing in an emerging market.
1: So you've got good growth, decent valuations, they're paying out massive dividends, you have secular growth prospects, and you have a moat that's basically supported by the government. Is that all is that all right? <laughs> yep. That's incredible. Okay, yeah. I definitely need to do some more work on, on Mexican airports. It sounds like a like a great place to invest. And also you touched on something I never even thought of, which was the whole medical tourism thing. That definitely sounds like it's probably going to catch on because I agree with you, the American healthcare system is, is a bit of a mess. Another understatement. <laughs> <laughs> cool. So also a company I thought you wrote that was that was pretty interesting was in Mexico was Coca Cola Femsa, the Mexican soda bottler. So do you want to talk a little bit about that company?
0: Sure, yeah. So, as the name would suggest, it's the leading, not only, there are several, but it's the leading Coca Cola bottle for Mexico. It also has the rights to a bunch of Colombia, several states in Brazil, and all of Venezuela, which obviously the Venezuelan asset is currently worth a big fat zero. But at some point in the future, you might get Venezuela back, which would be interesting. The business, the stock went up like three or four folds coming out of the Great Recession because it was kind of a leading emerging markets growth story and whatnot. But then obviously you lost the Venezuelan market pretty much overnight. And also Mexico was the first major country to pass the sugar tax. And so sales actually dropped, I think, 8%. This is from memory, so don't quote me. But I believe sales dropped 8% kind of the year that after they passed the sugar tax. And people viewed that as kind of meddling in the government, not wanting the market to get bigger. Things have settled down, it's returned to growth. You have a very interesting relationship in that they're 50% owned by FEMSA Parent, which is a holding company that operates a variety of businesses, but of particular interest, they operate 20,000 convenience stores. And so you get very preferential shelf spacing for Coke versus everything else and kind of the country's leading. But it's like the retailer that's everywhere. There's one within a thousand feet of your house if you live in a Mexican city and so you've got them aggressively pushing their own coke products over everything else it's been a good relationship yeah I think as FEMSA corporate parent continues to grow and they continue building a thousand of their convenience stores every year it gives you a nice distribution channel for coke the beverage
1: cool and has that sugar tax actually affected demand or was it just kind of much do about nothing
0: no, I think uh, I think it did knock down demand about 8% and then it kind of reset from that lower level and it's oh, okay. returned to kind of normal historical growth from that lower level.
1: Cool. Okay. And another one I thought was interesting was Alsea. So, they own Starbucks and Domino's throughout Mexico, so that that sounds like a very good opportunity for a country with a growing middle class. What what's the case for for that company?
0: Yep, you, mentioned, you described it correctly. 50% of the business is Mexican fast food, about 30% Europe, Spain, and France, and then 20% South America. They operate Domino's, Starbucks, and Burger King for most of those countries. And so, yeah, the, the appeal is just that you don't have a saturated market for fast food in Latin America yet. They're the largest operator. And they only have 4,500 stores, whereas in the U.S., you have like 15 different companies that have more than 4,500 stores, to give you a sense of perspective. Obviously, Latin America has a much larger population than the U.S. as well. And so it's still kind of a land grab stage, in my opinion. I think Starbucks and Domino's in particular are very compelling brands for consumers. I'll say has a large balance sheet, so they're able to advertise effectively This worked very well during the pandemic for them. They were kind of the only pizza company that had app-based delivering at a national scale. So when people are stuck at home, they were reporting like plus 30% year-over-year sales in 2020 on the pizza, which made up for their other restaurants being closed. Management is super aggressive. They always run the balance sheet at like three to four times leverage, which was viewed as the biggest criticism of the company, like that they'd run into trouble if Mexico ever hit a bump. the pandemic hit their stock went from like 70 pesos to 15 but the balance sheet held up fine they didn't have to dilute shareholders i think that kind of justified management's aggressive approach like you went through one of the biggest crises that you could have as a (laughs) sit-down restaurant operator balance sheet held up they've returned to strong growth they're opening 300 stores a year again off of their 4500 base and throw in maybe 5% same-store sales on the existing units. I think the math looks very nice. And particularly like Starbucks as a brand. I know people are down on Starbucks, the parent right now. they have kind of run into some problems in China, but who hasn't? But I think Starbucks really resonates with, with Latin American consumers. If you watch my Twitter, I post all the videos every time Starbucks Columbia opens a new store. he will have a line for like half a mile. <laughs> people wanna to try it out. And I think it's just something that we've lost in the US market. It's such a mature market where people are kind of, they've been there, done that with all these restaurant concepts. And yet it's still something that's genuinely new and interesting and people will pay a premium for it in South America.
1: Yeah. So it's kind of like investing in Starbucks in like the nineties or something where there's still like just a huge growth runway where they can they can continue to expand. Cool. So that's, the, that's definitely a comp, another company I need to look into and, and learn more about. That sounds like a great opportunity. And going to where you live in Colombia, I also saw you wrote about Banco Colombia. So it's five times earnings, a 14% dividend yield, Colombia's leading bank. I believe there's some moat there from pseudo government support, that type of thing. So what's, what's the case for Banco Colombia?
0: Yeah, what you mentioned, I think a very appealing part of the market as investors, not as consumers, but as investors, is that three banks have 70% market share. The government largely prevents foreign entrants from meaningfully competing. And so you have a very sheltered market with high profit margins. On previous occasions, the government has essentially told the banks you get to earn excess profits I don't think they use the word excess, but essentially you get a very nice market, but we're not going to bail you out if there's problems. So don't take stupid risks. (laughs) You've got a privilege here. I mentioned that Bank Colombia was one of the only listed banks that uh, went up between 2008 and 2009 and actually continued paying its dividend and grew earnings and hit a record stock price in 2009, which I think is pretty legendary performance as far as the banking industry goes. What makes it appealing longer term? I'm just, what is it? 15% of Colombians have a mortgage, around 10% have a credit card, a vastly underpenetrated market. I think our GDP, PPP adjusted GDP per capita is around $8,000. And kind of once you get over $10,000, the banks are happier to do business with you. So I think you'll see a lot of people become potential clients over the next five or 10 years. Banks have been on defense Oil is half of Colombia's exports, and so obviously our economy has been just kind of on pause since 2014 when oil crashed. But finally, kind of oil's up. Echo Patrol, our oil company, had record profits last year. So people are finally putting capital to work again, making new businesses. I think you'll finally see loan growth after years of these guys playing defense, like you've on offense again. And I I think you've got very good credit underwriting. These guys have been playing defense for a decade now, and so loan book is in great shape. I think you can grow for quite a while. In the next kind of expansionary cycle, you're going to get like five years where you can lend aggressively. The market is underpenetrated. Consumer debts are very low compared to other countries in the region. And I think you're buying at a rock bottom price. Like you said, it's five times earnings. And that's because the stock went up 30% this year. It was four times earnings last year. (laughs) It's trading at like 0.75 times book value. and You're getting an 18% ROE for 0.7 times. Point seven five times book value. I see is a craziest deal, just given what I mentioned. The market dynamics that your other competitors also offer equally high interest rates right now. Our banks are pay- paying the they are paying twelve percent on CDs and charging eighteen percent on fixed mortgages. Like, how do you lose money running that business model?
1: Hmm.
0: Wow. So, and
1: you mentioned they don't take a lot of risk. So, one of the reasons I kind of like am leery about American banks is that they seem to. I don't know they they seem to have risks always lurking in the background like some rogue trader some weird prop trading thing they're doing some goofy stuff with derivatives like like there's it's always like I don't really believe what I'm reading so this this isn't like that they're just doing traditional taking in deposits lending it out that type of thing
0: Yeah they they have an investment bank but the activity is more abundant. there's been an IPO in Colombia since 2016 I went to open a brokerage account to invest in a Colombian stock that's not listed in the U.S., and so I just went down to the Bank Columbia branch in the mall, and they were like, "You don't want to open a brokerage account here, sir. Our stocks only go down." They were like trying to convince me not to open a brokerage account. <laughs> <laughs> <And> oh no! <laughs> finally, they, they did, but it's just sentiment is so bad. It's just there's been no risk taking in this economy for a decade, which I think is what you want to see as a bank investor because. Everyone's just trying to avoid losing their job, <laughs> which, which is that's not funny. ideal. Like from a sentiment perspective, but from an investor perspective, the, the balance sheet is great. They're just lending to the top ten percent of society or people that work for the government. yeah. A, I talked to so many people that just are unbankable. Like they work, they're like teachers or nurses or whatever. And it's like, oh no, you don't earn enough money. We're not going to lend you.
1: Wow, and they're actually trying to talk you out of buying these stocks. That's funny. <laughs> And I guess another – so a main criticism would be that it's in Colombia. This is a very commodity-dependent, traditionally seen – I might just be my American bias talking here. It's traditionally seen as a commodity-driven economy, and commodities can be volatile. So what would you say to that criticism?
0: Yeah, that's an entirely fair point. I'd say that it looks like – I mean, oil is still going to be our bread and butter for quite a while. I think I think we do very well at $75 oil. We don't need oil to skyrocket from here. Like I said, our state oil company made more money this year than it made in 2013 when oil prices were much higher than they are now. So I think our core business is fine at these prices, The and the government is making some attempts to diversify. We're attempting to become a leading solar panel producer, which... Became less appealing this year than it was last year, judging by solar prices. But then, yeah, there are some investments in alternative industries. Tourism's growing. Yeah, so I, I think the economy is diversifying. There's a bit of a tech scene in Medellin. There's still a long way to go. I'm, Mexico and Chile have done much better jobs of diversifying their economy than in Colombia. But outside of this valuation, I think you only lose money if oil goes back to thirty-five. That would be the that would be the case where you have capital impairment. Cool. So those are the companies
1: I was very interested in. Are, are there any that you'd like to mention that you think are attractive opportunities?
0: Yeah. So there's one more in Mexico that I'm very excited about for 2024 called Rotoplast, which makes water tanks, boilers, filtration systems, recycling, basically anything to do with water infrastructure. Mexico has some of the worst water scarcity in the world. The northern third of the country is essentially a continuation of Arizona. So I think just terrible, terrible drought, and has been underinvested in water for decades. Even in places like Mexico City, like they truck water into the international airport because the city's water supply doesn't go out there reliably. And so you have a very inefficient, expensive, bad-for-the-environment water system. I think now that Mexico has more, more tax money coming in, I think you're going to see heavy infrastructure investments in water, particularly if the leftists keep winning elections, because they prioritize environmental concerns. You also have a huge structural housing shortage. Estimates five to seven million fewer housing units in Mexico than they need. You have a large millennial generation that I think will be moving out from mom and dad, finally buying apartments. Everybody needs a water tank, needs water pipes. The big obstacle why this stock didn't work last year—it was just kind of flat—was that Mexico set their interest rate at 11 and a quarter. Obviously, no one wants to buy a house when interest rates are 11 and a quarter. But the Mexico's inflation rate CPI has dropped from eight to four over the past year. So I, I don't see other central bank leaves, leaves interest leaves their overnight rate at 11 and a quarter when when inflation's 4%. I think you get several hundred basis points of easing this year. Housing market comes back and people are looking at housing stocks. I think obviously picking up the water company is a logical play, but then you've got kind of the longer term demographic and ESG related matters, so I think, helped them. They were the first company in Latin America to issue ESG bonds, which I think is pretty cool in terms of having access to cheap capital that other companies of their size probably wouldn't. And then management, finally, the company had been kind of run as one of those kind of family companies that wasn't very shareholder friendly, but there's a big management shakeup in 2019. The new guys, when they took over, said, we're going to double our EBITDA margins by 2025. So far, they're on track there's been huge cost cutting and every time they make a capital allocation decision they publish a slide saying why this is going to why their capital invested is going to achieve a ROIC larger than their WACC which once again very rare to see Mexican companies that that kind of run with this sort of outside financial metrics sort of framework rather than just doing whatever feels right or whatever the family wants them to do so oh, we've got professional management. It's like, we're going to get you an 18% EBITDA margin. We're going to make these investments pay off. Oh, yeah. And then just finally the kicker, the 20% of the business is in Argentina. that Malay one in Argentina. I think things will get a lot more profitable for that market as well.
1: Cool. And yeah, it's not. it sounds like it's not only an attractive investment opportunity, but they're going to be doing a lot of great things for people in that area of the world. Awesome. Well, so... You know, thanks for coming on and, and, and discussing these stocks. There's a lot of very interesting opportunities. If people want to learn more about your stock picks and your approach, what's the best place to, to do that?
0: Yeah, so I'm on Twitter at b e z B-E-Z-E-K. I'm pretty active there. And then my, my newsletter is on either Seeking Alpha or on Substack. I'll just search for Ian's Insider Corner. It should come up on either of those outlets.
1: Very cool. And is there anything that you, before we wrap up, is there anything that you'd like to add for for the audience or the listeners?
0: No, I think we covered pretty much everything on my mind for today.
1: All right. Well, thanks for coming on and thank you for your time.
0: Yeah, I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. For more information, please go to securityanalysis.org. Subscribers to the website get early ad-free access to podcast episodes in addition to weekly in-depth profiles of companies.